Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, when career and caring clash, caring for a parent, that is. It seemed inevitable that every time I flew to San Francisco, where my company was headquartered, something would come up. The minute I touched down in San Francisco, I'd have five voicemails from the nurse at the assisted living. I just remember like taking her to one doctor and one doctor's appointment took five hours. And I was thinking, I was like, how am I ever going to do this as one person? Because she needs to go to 10 doctors. So how do you do that and still balance your career or progress in your career? It was so all encompassing. And I'd see my guitar in the corner of the room or I'd see my friends and peers, the people I make music with doing their lives, you know, CD released, oh, Grammy nomination here. Three women in corporate and creative jobs on their careers plus caregiving. Coming up on The Broad Experience. If you've been listening to the show since the beginning, you may remember an episode I did several years ago called Home as Career Killer. One of my guests in that show was Liz O'Donnell. She'd been writing about women and work for quite a while, and she'd just published a book called Mogul, Mom and Maid. Liz was her family's sole breadwinner at the time. A few years ago, I noticed she'd switched tack in what she was posting about online. She'd shifted to talking about the issues around being a working woman who's caring not just for her kids, but for her parents. In 2016, she wrote a great piece in The Atlantic called The Crisis Facing America's Working Daughters. I meant to get back in touch with her then, but it was only this past autumn, when I faced a crisis with my own mother back in London, that I really began to think about this issue properly. I wasn't expecting to be hit with caregiving stuff in my 40s, but in fact, the typical caregiver is a woman in her late 40s or 50s, Usually, she has kids and a job as well. Enter Liz. Liz founded an online community called Working Daughter, a website, a Facebook group. She also has an upcoming book of the same name. The subtitle, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Making a Living. And that's all in her spare time. She works at a PR firm. She was full-time until last year. The working daughter stage of Liz's life began in earnest several years ago. She was in her late 40s. Her parents were in their 80s. They lived fairly close to her in Massachusetts. One day in particular got her thinking about this group of women who are juggling work and parent care. I had taken a day off from work so that I could take my mother to the doctor. And I got up at five to send some work emails. Then at six... I was getting the kids out the door to school. Then I drove, my mother's about an hour away from me, drove down to take her to the doctor and she wasn't ready to go. I had to push the appointment back. The doctor that day asked me why I worked and didn't quit to spend more time with my mother. It was a brutal day. 
Later that night, about 11pm, as she drove home from a talk she'd given to a group of working mothers, she thought, why on earth isn't there more attention to working daughters? The idea for an online community was born. Meanwhile, her own life was getting more complicated. Both her parents were failing in different ways. One weekend, one of her sisters, who doesn't live nearby, called and told Liz she'd been on the phone to their parents and something was wrong. Could Liz go over and check on them? That was a Sunday. Liz drove off and didn't come home till a week later. Much of that time was spent in hospitals trying to get diagnoses. Her father was very confused. Her mother was ill and couldn't be left alone. I was so busy and so um, overwhelmed by everything I was witnessing and handling that I never told work. I work remotely. I never even told work that I wasn't at work. And I would just try to answer enough emails every night and in the morning so it looked like I was at work. And I wasn't trying to fool anyone. I just really couldn't stop and say, whoa, this is what's happening. So if you fast forward to right before the day they were diagnosed, I remember I was at the hospital my dad was then sent to, and I found a quiet space and there happened to be a wheelchair. And I sat down and I called my boss and said, here's what's going on in my life. And her boss was quite sympathetic. So her first thing she said was, you know, you need to take care of yourself, which are the six most annoying words I think that a caregiver can ever hear because we know we need to take care of ourselves, but we don't know how to take care of ourselves. And she asked me how I wanted to handle the situation. And I, as the breadwinner, I said, I want to keep working. Um, You know, I'll figure this out. But that was before she received two diagnoses. On July 1st, 2014, Liz was told her father had Alzheimer's and her mother had ovarian cancer. A couple of weeks later, she saw her boss in person. And I walked into her, uh, into the hotel where we were meeting up to go see a client, and I just burst into tears. And I'd been trying not to get to that point with her because I knew what she was going to say, which was, you need to take a leave of absence. And I was terrified that she would say that because I couldn't afford to take a leave of absence. Uh, so I was trying to hide it. I knew she was right, but I also knew that it wasn't right for me. So we talked it through, and I said, I can do this, but I, I went part-time, and we agreed that I would have a flexible schedule. And some days I would work in the morning, and some days I would work at night, and I would let the team know day-to-day what I was doing. She says she lost out financially, but at the time there was so much going on, it had to be that way. Liz's mother opted not to be treated for the cancer, and she died several months later. Liz went back to full-time work right after the funeral, Meanwhile, Liz's dad was now living at an assisted living facility just down the street from Liz and her family. She's married with two teenagers. And for a couple of years, she says things were pretty good. Her dad's Alzheimer's seemed to be under control. They had some good times as a family. But then things began to go downhill. It seemed inevitable that every time I flew to San Francisco, where my company was headquartered, something would come up. The minute I touched down in San Francisco, I'd have five voicemails from the nurse at the assisted living. He didn't seem well. Could I take him to the doctor? Or we live in the Northeast, and we had a really, really uh, big snowfall one winter. 
And my father kept stealing the uh, shovels and going out and shoveling because he didn't think the facility was doing a good enough job. And, of course, they didn't want this 89-year-old man who was a fall risk out shoveling. You know, So they'd call me and say, you need to talk to him, and, and I'd be across the country. That said, she knows she's fortunate compared to many other employees who work day-to-day in an office or a factory, where if they disappear to take a parent to a doctor or deal with a sudden crisis, they're afraid of looking bad, or worse, losing their job. So absolutely, there are advantages to the fact that I'm remote and I have, you know, there are also advantages to the fact that I'm fairly senior in my career and flexibility is uh, born of you know, building trust and seniority over time. On the other hand, I don't have uh, the same camaraderie necessarily with my coworkers. I needed to lean on them quite a bit um, so that if I couldn't finish something and I was leaving in the morning, I needed them to take over. And I didn't quite have the same rhythms and relationships that you might have if you're sitting next to someone every day. So that was tough. Then, last year, the same year her father died, Liz's job was downsized. She was moved to part-time. And she's never going to know how much her caregiving had to do with that or if it had to do with that. But she can't help thinking all the flex time she took over the years might have affected the company's view of her. Part of it was just circumstantial across what was happening in our industry and the business. But, and, and part of this might be in my head, but I never felt, Ashley, like I got back to the status and the security and the influence that I had at work or in my career. She says a couple of things are at play when it comes to perceptions of professionals like her. One is that we don't tend to work at the same company for years like we used to. So where I earned my, you know, my street cred, right, and my ability to be flexible uh, wasn't necessarily at the firm that I was at now. So the younger staff didn't know that I had already paid my dues. And they come in and they see this older woman and she's always, you know, leaving and she's not at her desk or she's not on Slack or instant message. They don't know how hard I've worked and, you know, what my abilities are necessarily. So I think that's a factor for a lot of people who need to take flex is that we work at so many different companies, people don't necessarily see the progression. And the other thing I I think is elder care is invisible. So when you have a new baby, your coworkers throw you a shower and your friends throw you a shower and everyone and you you come in on your maternity leave and you bring the baby and everybody oohs and ahs and then you bring pictures and and people expect that when you come back from that leave that you might have shifted a little bit uh you know or that you have other other priorities in addition to your career and and it's talked about but when you're caring for an aging parent you're really ultimately facing down dying and death and nobody wants you to bring that up in the office Liz says life for working daughters can certainly improve. We will come back to her later in the show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, and I really wanted a duplex. I'm meeting Maria Toropova in Brooklyn in the empty apartment she just rented for her and her mom. She's a member of Liz's online community, Working Daughter, and we'd got to know each other a little by phone before I showed up at her new place. It's new construction, and the apartment isn't large by non-New York standards, but it has two floors. The upstairs bathroom is sleek, but compact. <laughs> this is the tiniest sink you'll ever see in your entire life. <laughs> Maria's bedroom is downstairs in the basement. The only thing that kills me is that there are no windows. <laughs> it's actually a really decent size for New York. Um, yeah, half bath, um, separate entrance, which is great. Um, Until last summer, Maria was like a lot of other young professionals in New York. She was 29, sharing a tiny apartment in Greenwich Village with a roommate, putting in long hours at the office, seeing friends after work, going for long runs along the Hudson River to de-stress. Her mum was living in St. Louis, where Maria grew up. Maria and her parents emigrated to the U.S. from Russia when she was 12 years old. They're originally from Azerbaijan. Her father died a year after they arrived in America. Ever since, it's been just Maria and her mum. Her mother used to work as a computer engineer. Since arriving in the U.S., she's worked long hours as a home health aide. Maria works for a big financial services company. She's in training and development. And she was at the office last August when she got a call that changed her life. She works in a building with terrible cell phone reception. And the summer is a really busy time for her. So when she noticed a voicemail from her mum's friend back home, she thought, I'll pick it up later. And I actually didn't think anything of it. And then a few hours later, I noticed that it was still there. And I went into a room to listen to it. And I couldn't actually get the entire voicemail because the reception was so poor. So all I heard was kind of parts like hospital and stroke. And so I called her friend back and, again, could not really get the full picture. Um, so I had to go back into the office and get on the landline in a private office. Um, obviously, at that point, quite emotional and trying to figure out what happened. And that's when I learned she had a stroke the night before. Maria's mother had been able to call her friend the following morning and say, please go to work for me. There's something wrong. But because she'd waited half a day before she got help, the stroke did quite a bit of damage. Maria's boss took her home from the office and she flew out to St. Louis that evening. She was in the ICU when I got there um, and she was in the ICU for quite a bit and then the hospital and then rehab. So I was obviously just completely off the grid um, right away. Um, so I took a couple of weeks of just time off. And then as she transferred into inpatient rehab, I um, said, I can, I think I can go back to working remotely, which, um, and I've said this over and over again, I'm incredibly lucky because throughout this entire situation, I have an incredible boss. He's one of the most, you know, he is the most incredible human being I've ever met in my life and uh, professionally and otherwise just the kindest human. And he stood behind me and so did the company. And uh, that just meant the world and still does. And so with that, we were kind of able to work out a remote work arrangement. Maria had a ton on her plate. She was visiting her mother in rehab, talking to doctors, handling reams of paperwork, 
Then her mother came home and Maria was taking care of her and working flexible hours from the house. In the fall, she felt herself crumbling. At first, I... I mean, I started to get a lot of really bad anxiety, um, panic attacks uh, to the point where I thought I was having a stroke. Um, and so that was new. Um, so that was kind of the first trigger. And then obviously, as time kind of moved on, um, just fell into probably, I mean, I think the diagnosis was severe depression. So I think at first it was just kind of functioning in adrenaline. So it really, really caught up with me right around the like, end of November, December time. And that's when I took leave of absence from work. Maria went on disability leave. She found a good psychiatrist in St. Louis and she's been seeing her ever since. She says any kind of therapy is frowned upon in her immigrant community, but she thinks it saved her life. Her words. She says again her workplace and her manager in particular have been supportive over everything she's been through. Even with that said, I still found myself struggling because I do have a demanding job, um, just so do many others, and trying to balance it all. And uh, first you get this influx of information and bills, and you're, I think I literally took two boxes of paperwork here with me. So, And so it was trying to balance that and still making sure, you know, I always put my job job family first and making sure that I am giving that 150 percent and at some point it just I felt like it wasn't possible. No kidding. Maria was putting a lot of pressure on herself and when her mother came home that was when she realized just how intense her new role was going to be. And once she was home and I was her sole 24-7 caregiver you know, she was fine for periods of time and I had friends helping out, but it's, I just remember like taking her to one doctor and one doctor's appointment took five hours. And I was thinking, I was like, how am I ever going to do this as one person? Because she needs to go to 10 doctors and this just literally took half of my day. (laughs) So how do you do that and still balance your career or progress in your career? She honestly doesn't know. She's still at the start of all this. She says her mum has recovered well from the stroke in many ways. She's walking and talking, but she has cognitive difficulties now, like a much older person might. Her mum is 65. Maria says her mum is dying to go back to work as a home health aide, but Maria's not sure that'll happen. She has a big support network in St. Louis, but she's just sold the family home and rented this place in Brooklyn for the two of them. Why did you decide to move back here to this difficult city? Yeah, so um, I think, unfortunately, my mom has literally worked 70-hour weeks every single week. Like She's taken one vacation in the last 17 years. But due to the fact that we are an immigrant family, and I knew this time would come where I would fully support her. So I think it was just, I didn't expect it to necessarily come in the way that it did. And financially we need assistance because obviously she has no income except for very small social security checks so it's imperative that I keep my job which was obviously here and then I right away found out actually through resources that um, were available to me through work that New York is by far one of the best states um, in terms of public assistance for health care so that largely probably drove my decision. She says back in Missouri, she was told the most economical option would be to have her mother live in a nursing home, something Maria can't contemplate. Talk a little bit about that. You you mentioned this when we first spoke on the phone. You said you talked about culture and how you would never 
have your mum living somewhere other other than where you are? Yeah, so I think a lot of my sort of personal struggles and in relationship with my mom have been a lot of times driven by that cultural gap. So she's um, she just turned 65. I'm about to be 30. So we have a very different age gap um, as well as a cultural gap. She grew up in Soviet Union in a very conservative country within the Soviet Union. I largely grew up here. So my ideas are very much American. But at the same time, the value set is still kind of rooted in me from that Eastern European society. And so I've always kind of struggled with that because in um, Russia, for example, or any a lot of other Eastern European cultures, especially back in the day and still to some degree now, it's common for to have multi-generational households and a lot of the parents' happiness and um, sort of sense of self comes from their children versus in America, it's very much centered around the individual. And so having grown up here, I've always kind of struggled balancing that and what would make my mom happy for me to do versus what would make me happy. And so now having lived with her under the same roof and after having her gone through this illness, I think those kind of issues have surfaced a little bit more in terms of even here, I'm going to be moving into the basement. It's like how much privacy will I have because privacy is not really sort of something that's very valued and at least in the culture where I grew up versus in America, it very much is. And so I think that really will kind of, you know, play into it. But at the same time, I can't imagine just because I also feel like she's very young. She's only 65. Um, and again, it's a very personal choice and I have absolutely no judgment against it. I think everyone has to make the right choice for them. But for me personally, I can't imagine leaving her in a nursing home right now, even though that's what she's kind of saying I should be doing because she's worried that I'm giving up my life to take care of her. Maria says life in New York with her mom it's going to be different from the old, relatively carefree days before last August. She used to joke with colleagues with kids, how do you look after them after a hard day at work? Now she'll be in a similar position. What, are you th- what do you think about the prospect of going back to work? When you think about that, what do you think? Uh, I think part of me, it's sort of, two-parter um I think equally excited equally overwhelmed um excited uh, a lot of times you know when I was talking about whether I move back or not in a way it's sort of this survival instinct where I wanted to get parts of my own life back um the ones that I could and work was a huge element of that and going back into the environment that I know and like I said I love my team um the people that I work with so really looking forward to that and just daily interactions um overwhelmed in a way where I know that how seriously I took my job and how I will likely feel when I return and recognizing that I'm not going to be able to, you know, I had the luxury of staying late whenever I needed to or coming in early and now I'll pretty much have, I think, you know, limitations around that and sort of figuring out how that's going to play into my job function, but also just career long term. I wonder, you know, 
will I ever be able to go on a business trip again and how that's going to affect my career prospects. Uh, I had, I think I've mentioned, um, I was pretty much, you know, set on international um, career opportunities and recognizing that that's kind of no longer an option. So just kind of figuring out what it means for my career moving forward. Yeah, didn't you say you had been hoping to go to London? I did, yes. Um, so actually that wasn't, I did share that with my boss and he was obviously very supportive. But actually, ironically, I was kind of thinking of the timeline to start doing that right as she um, unfortunately got sick. So just, I guess, trying to figure out what that means for my career in the long term. Maria is taking things one day at a time. She knows her mum will have trouble adjusting to the change once she moves here but she hopes they'll gradually find their feet together. She feels the responsibility of being the sole wage earner and carer. Still, she says she can make it work. Part of the beauty of the city is that it is, you know, so full of different possibilities. There is no kind of tunnel vision. There's still artists and musicians and, you know, sort of struggling artists, quote-unquote, that, you know, are surviving here. So I don't think... It's impossible. I think it's just going to be a little bit different. Maria and her mother have already been through a lot together. And Maria has good friends and supportive colleagues. She hopes with help, the two of them can weather this change as well. You met Kate Shutt in the first of two shows I did recently on the coaching industry – Kate is a coach, but she's also trained as a musician, and her longtime career has been as a singer-songwriter. Not an easy career at the best of times. Like Maria, Kate became a carer unexpectedly. In her case, she was in her late 30s, and just about to leave on a work trip she was quite excited about. I was headed to a extended gig in the Middle East, in Doha, Qatar. Uh, I was going to play guitar and sing in a fancy hotel there. I had negotiated my contract. I had my two guitars and my duffel bag packed and I would be there for at least a month, probably not, probably more. And I went home to see my parents and basically say goodbye to them. I was, let's say, leaving on a Monday. It was a Friday. Got out of the car and my mom did not look well at all. And just from her expression on her face, I knew something was up. And that's when she told me she had been having these symptoms and that she had had a CAT scan and was waiting for the results of that CAT scan to come in. While Kate was there, the results came back. Her mother had a tumour in her abdomen and a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. Kate decided then and there that her work trip was off. I asked my dad to take me back to the train station. I took a train back to New York. I unpacked, I repacked took one guitar and a small bag back to Pennsylvania, where my family home is, and moved into a childhood bedroom and became my mom's primary caregiver. Kate says she adored her mother. She was an amazing person. And she wanted to be with her while she went through what they all knew would be grueling treatment. She says it was absolutely her choice to do this. Unlike Maria, who has to support her mother financially, Kate's family could support her while she took care of her mother, interacted with doctors and ferried her to and from hospital visits. I asked what role her father played. My dad is 
her was her well, I would say he was my wingman I mean her, he's her loving partner of you know decades and decades of marriage but he's I like to just say he's an old school dad uh he was on incapable of quarterbacking this care it was extremely complicated as anybody who's been through anything like this or any dealings with the western medical system it was in you know there was lots of decisions to make constantly with half or less than half information she says he just wasn't the person to handle all that kate says handling it was a full-time job she had less and less time to even think about her own life, her own career. It was so all-encompassing, and I'd see my guitar in the corner of the room, or I'd see my friends and peers and uh, mates, you know, so to speak, my the people I make music with, doing their lives, you know. Oh, CD released. Oh, Grammy nomination here. Oh, new body of music. Oh, you know tour with this person and um that was it was a very strange experience I guess the thing I would say was I did not feel like myself that's what I kept saying to my partner I said I don't recognize myself I don't recognize myself and I just for me there was certainly in the beginning there was so much to do to get her through the major debulking surgery, frontline chemo, like I would literally put her in bed at night and face plant on the bed. And and if I had an hour free, which would be early morning before she woke up, I had to exercise because that's how I process my stress. So it was like exercise and process my stress or pick up my guitar. And at that point, I was unable to pick up my guitar. Kate and her family knew the cancer would end her mother's life but they strove to give her as good a life as she could have while she was going through treatment. Kate says it was a privilege to take care of her. Their relationship deepened as time went on. I had years to talk about the most important questions in life. Like, where do you think, where do you, think you go when you die? Do you think you go anywhere? What does living a good life mean to you? Who do you want to spend your time with now that it's so precious? Kate's mum lived for four years after the diagnosis, and Kate was there the whole time. By the end, she was totally spent, exhausted mentally and physically. Both she and her dad took some time to recover. She says it took about another year to get her dad's life back on track, not to mention her own. When you got back on the other side of that, could you, when you were strong enough to even function as a working person, did you really feel that? Did you, were you like, yep, yep, I really have lost four years and I noticed that from where I am? Yeah, I feel it every day when I sit down to practice my guitar. I mean, I spent five years not practicing daily. Anybody who plays an instrument knows that that's not, you can't, expect yourself to perform as an instrumentalist or as a musician and not be working on your craft. Let's just talk about craft. Let's not talk about art. Let's just talk about craft when I wasn't doing that. 
and and you know my story a little bit, so you know that yes, I was eventually I started making notes towards writing songs. So it wasn't like the whole four years I was just, you know, fixing meals and going to the hospital. Sure, there was after I got my feet under me a year and a half or more into it, I started to be able to make notes towards what has now become the thing I've been working on, which is making this album. But uh, if I this morning sitting down to practice my guitar, it's like. That's why I say I have to remind myself I can't be upset at myself. That was a choice I made. If I'm frustrated with where I am as a player, it's because, you know, partly it's because for five years I didn't do anything on my instrument. She says her earning power as a musician has taken a hit too. You only are young enough to have verve and energy to pursue your career. I mean, hopefully we're all living longer and with a lot of energy, but I believe in that stuff. You know, if if I wanted to go out and get a job, even now, I'd be, I'm, you know, I'm 43, about to, literally about to turn 44. That's an old age to go, be going and starting some, something new. I mean, so I felt like, yeah, I certainly wasn't, um, I wasn't building anything. Let's put it that way. I wasn't building anything publicly. You know, I was writing, I was writing notes towards songs. Gee whiz. Good good for you. <laughs> Nothing that anybody would look at and say, you know, that has value in our world today. I mean, the thing I know, right, and I'm getting choked up, is that I know what kind of a person it takes to do that work. And that's probably where your listeners will meet me. Is because there's it's a very different person who says yes to that challenge. And I have to believe that that, I have to believe, otherwise I might as well just go off myself. You know, I have to believe that there was a meaning for my music, for my soul, for my friends and loved ones. That me going through that experience was teaching me something about what it means to live. Kate did a TED Talk last year about how to help someone cope with a loss. I will link you to that under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. If you're in the position of caring for a parent while holding down a job, much will depend on where you work or who your manager is. Maria Toropova has been lucky in that regard. Liz O'Donnell of Working Daughter says women in her community have experiences that are all over the place. She says American employers are getting better at trying to offer some formal help. We're seeing more and more companies crop up here in the U.S. that um, are selling into employers. We will help your employee find backup care. We will help your employee sort through um, the checklist of things that they need to do to provide care. So companies are now starting to contract these companies and offer these services. So that's part of it. Then there's the cultural part. She says if we could just talk about all this a bit more. 
I don't believe we should all go in and share our personal information in the workplace every day. But if we at least give the space, if somebody wants to talk about it, or learn not to, you know, run away in horror if somebody brings up, I just came from hospice before I showed up for work, or I'm heading to hospice, you know, on my way home tonight. If we just started to normalize that and give it some space, then I think that would help. And we see uh, working parent groups all the time at large corporations and small ones too. I I don't know that we have many uh, formalized support groups for people who have parents. And in a work-centric culture like America's, many carers are forced to decide, work or family. There are a number of women that I can think of who have told us in the group that they've lost their job as a result of caregiving, or not necessarily that they were fired as a result of caregiving, but they didn't feel that they could manage both work and care. I think one of the things that people don't realize also about caregiving is how many medical tasks caregivers can be doing. I'm Not all of us, but some people are going to work, whether it's a desk job or a shift job, and then coming home and they're giving injections, they're changing colostomy bags, they're sorting 14 pills at a time. This is stuff that you think you need to have medical training, either nursing school or um, medical school for, and daughters and sons are doing it every day. So how do you go to work on top of all of that? And Liz says there's another part to all this, something that's beyond the realm of HR. And that's the part that companies can't necessarily help with, right? the emotional part and there's a huge emotional part because you're you're having to come to terms with the fact that your parent isn't able to do what they used to do and you have to come to terms with the fact that that also means that they may not be there for you in the way you're used to being there for you it definitely definitely shakes your identity and people talk a lot about this idea of it's a role reversal. And I like to shy away, move away from that term. I mean, in a sense, it is a role reversal. I'm caring for you versus you caring for me. But the reason I'm not crazy about that term is I prefer to think of it just as a natural stage in life. You know, it, it, when you're born, when you're young, you have a child-parent relationship. And then as an adult, you hope you can have an adult-adult relationship with your parents. And then as they get older, I just like to think of it as yet another phase. A phase where the relationship naturally shifts. And why not normalize it, she says, because it's going to happen to us. That's the broad experience for this time. Thanks to Liz O'Donnell, Maria Toropova and Kate Shutt for being my guests on this show. I will link you to Liz's community working daughter and to Kate's TED Talk under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. As ever, I'm keen to hear from you. If you have anything you'd like to add to the discussion, you can comment under this episode on the website or tweet me or email or post on the Facebook page. And if you can afford to kick in to support the show, that would be much appreciated. Thanks again to all those of you who have done this and especially to my monthly sustainers. If you can't give, write a review on Apple Podcasts instead. It all helps the show get noticed in our increasingly crowded podcast world. I'm Ashley Miltite. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 